Thanks for tuning in. I'm Sarah Lee, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. In this episode, CRC's Research Director Mike Watson and I sit down to hash out some of the issues of the day as they relate to the research and the work CRC is currently engaged in. Hey Mike, how you doing today? Uh, hello Sarah, I'm doing well. Good, a lot going on out there. Uh, quite a bit, yeah. <laughs> Alright, well let's talk about some of it. So I sent you a few questions, but I think we're probably going to veer off of those questions a little bit. But we're going to start with Arabella Advisors because that is a big project that we've been working on for a couple of years now. And it looks like after some Wall Street Journal coverage and some Fox News coverage that people are starting to finally pick up on who Arabella Advisors is. So I am going to let you, as if I've never heard of them before, explain who they are and why they matter. So Arabella Advisors, in its simplest form, is just a nonprofit management company, but it manages a certain kind of nonprofit. And that kind of nonprofit is liberal advocacy groups, especially those that engage in that sort of, you know, not campaign, but definitely electoral stuff that goes by the, the liberals gave it this name, uh, dark money. Dark money. And that is their term, which is very important because that was a term that they used to cast aspersions on right-leaning money in politics. Right. So sort of how, so sort of how it goes or how it, how it goes and how it went was in 2010, you had a Supreme Court decision called Citizens United. And what Citizens United said was that corporate organizations in this, uh, for, for these purposes, specifically a certain class of nonprofit organization corporations could engage in uncoordinated electoral advocacy. And what that means is that if you're the candidate and I'm the outside group, as long as you don't tell me what to say and I don't ask you to tell me what to say, I can say whatever I want to support you. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the 2010, 2012, and 2014 elections, uh, conservative, pro-business, right-leaning, free market, take your pick. Uh, hopefully all of them at once. Hopefully all at once. <laughs> um, did quite a lot of it. And the, uh, the left, which had previously had uh, advantages in both the sort of traditional political organizing, uh, the labor union movement, which basically functioned as a super PAC before super PACs existed, uh, and the, uh, the sort of traditional PACs, the 527s, uh, you know, they didn't expect this to happen. And then it happened. And then they were started off on the back foot and spent a lot of time complaining about it. But they've caught up now. Because... Uh, they have caught up in more. Yeah. So uh, who, 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 what is the Arabella advisor? So what Arabella about? does is it manages the 1630 fund. It manages a couple other funds. But New Venture Fund. New Venture, Hopewell, Windward. Windward. Uh, but those are uh, traditional public policy advocacy. They don't directly intervene in elections. 1630 does. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what Arabella, what a, don a liberal donor, you know, a member of the Democracy Alliance does is they go to the 1630 fund and they give it money to spend on various liberal electoral projects. Mm -hmm. You see these, these, you know, name of state for health care protection. Uh, well, that isn't that's an actually 
a 16 that's entirely funded by the 1630 fund it's run by the 1630 fund through grants right 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 through through you know a, a liberal donor gives it to the 1630 fund and then the 1630 fund uses this front organization essentially to uh, to conduct its state level campaign and it looks like it's all grassroots and it looks like it's you know the concerned people of New Hampshire no, it's actually uh, political consultants who work in Washington, D.C. Right. And I know the Fox News article that we just had come out about our update to Arabella was just more money in 2018. The amount of money they, they were. Yeah, they're the, the entire Arabella world, which includes that 1630, that electoral money, uh, which, is, which has been reported on before, but also that traditional public policy advocacy uh, through the New Venture Fund, through through uh, the Hopewell Fund and through the Windward Fund, uh, in in total, exceeded $600 million. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Which is a lot of money. So one of the criticisms, the Fox News article was very responsible in how they conducted their uh, piece because, or how they conducted their interviews and, and trying to get comments from Arabella itself. The group itself, and one of the criticisms the Arabella um, spokesperson had for our re- for our report was that these are grassroots groups that they're they're not pop ups, which is what we call them. Um, that they're not funding these groups at all, um, and that this is just you know good public advocacy for good public policy. It's a strange way to. Cl- the classical public policy advocacy group, like Capital Research Center. You know, exists has an independent tax status. We are a registered nonprofit corporation with the IRS and with the district with um, the relevant jurisdictions. You know, we have a corporate existence. We have a president. We have a board of directors. We're on the, the books. We're on the books. <laughs> These Arabella groups are only very tangentially on the books. Right. They might have a registered trade name. They might have, and I mean, some of these entities we only know of as a registered trade name. Um, they pop up. That's why they're called pop-ups, by the way. They they exist. Some of them might pre-exist the, the huge grants they get, but they exist and they're pretty much, as Mike mentioned, sort of tangentially on the books. And then all of a sudden they have $15 million to spend or right. something Right, their campaign... They're like campaign committees almost, but not for campaigns. Mm-hmm. You know, they are a brand name that for the registered corporation, 1630 Fund, but it's 1630 Fund's money, it's 1630 Fund's operatives, it's 1630 Fund's, uh, you know, direction. Uh, to call them grassroots is, I, I mean... I am a firm believer that there is no such thing as grassroots, Mm -hmm. so they're proving my point. (laughs) So let's talk for a second before we move on to one of those groups specifically that's related to the SCOTUS fight that's getting ready. It's already Mm -hmm. happening, but it's getting ready to really break open. Um, Why is it so hard to... Tell me why it's so hard to sort of track this. Why Why is it called dark money? The It's about anonymizing contributions. It's about anonymizing. And, and and let's be clear, anonymous political advocacy is an important protected right. Uh, you know, it has, the Supreme Court has explicitly recognized it since the 1950s mm-hmm. when the, um, you know, various segregationist governments uh, went after the, the NAACP. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted the NAACP's membership list probably possibly because they wanted to leak it to the government aligned terrorist militia that they were that they were 
that was supporting the segregationist governments. Mm-hmm. That's a fair assumption. Yeah, yeah. And and so the, sp- the point is that the privacy in some of this kind of you know donate donation to political advocacy is a good thing. Right, right. There there is a there is a place. I mean, we have right now we have activists going to people's houses and going to people on the street and yelling at them because they are or are not part of some cause or another. Mm-hmm. You know, if you took away the anonymous right, the, the right of anonymous political advocacy, uh, you'd have a lot more of that. So again, I understand why Arabella does what it does. I would expect or hope that they would extend that right to their political opponents. Um, I suspect in practice they do not. The um, but it also allows you to stand up these pop-up organizations, these pop-up campaign groups, um, on a moment's notice. You don't have to file for. I mean, think about the IRS scandal uh, during the Tea Party era when these conservative Tea Party free market groups they wanted to be by the books, they wanted to be on the books. So they filed for their, you know, social welfare tax status, and the IRS said no. Right. And if you're one of these pop-up groups, you know, the 1630 fund already has a tax status, and it can basically grant you use of its tax status. Mm-hmm. Um, a practice known as fiscal sponsorship. Um, now, in traditional fiscal sponsorship, the idea is that the group grows, develops, plants its roots. And then files for its own tax status and creates its own corporate, its own genuine corporate identity in addition to a brand identity. But with these the, groups, with these pop up groups, especially the ones that are more campaign election focused with 1630 fund, they often just disappear. Yeah. So let's talk about one of the groups under Arabella. Um, it, it, it's going to factor in, it factored in during the Kavanaugh. Yep. Um, uh, hearing it's going to factor in. I, I think Trump has said he is going to name his nominee on Saturday. Yeah, this Saturday. So we'll see what kind of things happen as a result of that of him naming that nominee. But there was a group during the Kavanaugh hearing that was very active in pushing back against Kavanaugh called Demand Justice, and mm-hmm. they are one of the groups underneath the Arabella um, umbrella. So let's talk a little bit about that. They have apparently pledged ten million dollars, I think. Yeah, a lot, a, a lot of money. They're, they are probably they are one of the largest entities under. I want to say sixteen thirty fund. I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure they're they're organized as a lobbying group. So I think they're I think they're sixteen thirty fund. So basically, what they did during Kavanaugh and what we can probably expect again is they were you know kind of funding the unrest. That they're, was yeah, they're they're organizing the protests. They're mm-hmm. busing in the in the demonstrators. They are. Uh, providing talking points to the various Democrat uh, uh, Democratic senators who are going to be questioning the nominee, whoever that is. Um, and they are the ten million. I should say is to keep the the Ginsburg seat open uh, until after the election. Right, right. The the idea is to prevent the confirmation until you know the presumption being that there would be a, a president more in line with demand justices broader ideology. Uh, Brian Fallon, who heads Demand Justice, is was one of Hillary Clinton's senior spokespeople mm-hmm. on the 2016 campaign. That's uh, so that can give you an idea of what their ideology and <laughs> ideology is. Um, well, I have a question about that because we are currently 
uh, we're waiting for an op-ed to run um, that we just wrote here at CRC related to this idea, and it, and, it, and it sinks into the Arabella story, but this sort of adoption of the Democrats to sort of embrace or adopt radicalism. And you mentioned Brian Fallon. I mean, that's a pretty establishment guy. He was part of a campaign for Hillary Clinton. So, but Demand Justice really got their... They really did some a little bit of funding of radical behavior. So yeah, they're. What do you what do you make of that? So I think it's a manifestation of something Megan McCardle, the commentator, coined many many years ago called Jane's Law, and that is where the party in power becomes smug and arrogant, the party out of power goes insane, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think again, if you if you're the the Democrats. You know, or you know, liberal. If you're if you're a a someone who shares Ruth Bader Ginsburg's view of the Constitution, that it's a living document, that it can be read very broadly to guarantee a number of liberal priorities uh, while overturning conservative ones. Um, you are looking at your at the way the the cards are dealt to you right now. Not great. Uh, the filibuster for. Supreme Court nominations disappeared because you insisted that they filibuster Neil Gorsuch. Going to say McConnell after after uh, you know Senator McConnell warned Senator Reid that that getting rid of the filibuster for lower court judicial nominations would provoke retaliation. and, and he that, took a huge political risk by with the Merrick Garland thing because right. that would have that was that was incumbent upon. A, a Democrat not winning the presidency, and that was not something anyone saw coming. Right, right, and let's and then let's be and, and, and again, let's be clear: the the situation for the Senate is the same now as it was then. If a majority of the you know if the uh, governing majority of the Senate is in alignment with with the nominee, the nominee will be confirmed. Mm-hmm. If the governing majority of the Senate is not in alignment with the nominee, the nominee will not be confirmed. Which is why McConnell is saying, yes, we're going to go ahead yeah. and give it a vote. Uh, and so, uh, you know, bringing that back to, you know, if you're a, a, a liberal looking at the situation now. Not good. You know, you're, you, you don't have the filibuster. You do not have the Senate majority uh, because you lost that in 2014 and did not retake it in 2018. Uh, you do not have the presidency, uh, at least until January, uh, and you're staring in the you know potentially the possibility that the Republican that the Republicans will confirm a fifth solid and sixth overall uh, solid constitutionalist justice who is going to place limits on your ability to. Uh, convey your expansive reading of the Constitution into law. Um, so desperate times call for desperate measures. So, so you have so you have the things that you had with the Kavanaugh hearing, where they were, but you know, where the the woman from Center for Popular Democracy buttonholing uh, then Senator Flake in the elevator. Oh right. Uh, you know where you had the also, the, I believe, funded by Arabella. Some of those groups were that were. 
confronting Flake and, and yeah, I I'm I'm not sure about C. I, I would not be surprised if CPD was Arabella funded, but they're not part of the they're not part of the core Arabella network. Right. They're, I think Shane Devine here at CRC actually wrote because I used some of it in an op ed just recently that they actually mm -hmm. they could trace some of their funding. Yeah, back. I, I I would certainly not be surprised mm -hmm. if 1630 had given money to Center for Popular Democracy or if New New Venture Fund had given money to Center for mm -hmm. Popular Democracy. Um. So yeah, so so again, it's desperate times call for desperate measures. Throw everything at the you know, throw the kitchen sink at the wall and hope that you hope that you can run out the clock. So it's not necessarily a um, embrace for now until the end of time. It's just desperate times call for desperate I, I, I think it's desperate times call for desperate measures. There's an I think there is more radicalism in the Democratic Party than there was in say 2007. Mm -hmm. But again, if you think back to when George W. Bush was president, you had. You had 9-11 conspiracy theories. You had, um, you know, the the Diebold voting machine conspiracies. Mm -hmm. They had somehow stolen the 2004 election, um, you know, with, you know, Republicans during the Obama years. So it, oddly, this is nothing a, new. <laughs> in, in a way, in a way, this is nothing new. I mean, it's... It's the, just very know, dramatic. It's very dramatic and it's bull and it's crazy to be living through and, you know, combined with some of the other things that are going on and it looks like the wheels are coming off the world, but in a sense, it's refreshingly normal that a that a uh, an out of power party with its back against the wall is doing crazy things because right. that's what tends to happen. Okay, so let's move on to our final uh, our final subject today because this one's I know near and dear to your heart, and I know you're working on it, um, and we'll be producing some work for the organization here in short order on this. Um, and I want you to talk about it and explain it again. This is not my field of expertise, but it's definitely Mike's field of expertise. So I'm going to act like I know nothing about it, although I do know a little because I've read everything Mike has written. But there is a, a sort of um, section of the conservative uh, punditry, I guess, that has sort of embraced this idea of labor unions. And um, Mike does not think this is a very conservative move. So I, tell us I do why. not think it is a strategically prudent move in any way. Uh, so to try to give this faction their due, uh, there is you know a number of prominent conservative figures, uh, Yuval Levin, J.D. Vance, Senator Marco Rubio. And these are good, these for, are generally former, good conservatives. Uh, former Attorney General uh, Jeff Sessions mm -hmm. joined with this new, um, this new, you know, ostensibly conservative, sort of more nationalist conservative think tank, American Compass, run by Orrin Cass, who was on the Romney campaign as a domestic policy advisor. Um, and they put out this statement uh, that said that conservatives should try to reinvigorate the labor movement. Mm -hmm. And they've written op-eds. Yeah, and they, they've written well. op-eds. They had one of their uh, one of American Compass's senior people had a piece in USA Today. I think as we you know today as we record uh, on Thursday. You know, so this isn't, you know, this isn't nobody. This isn't people on the internet. This is, you know, real, a real serious thinking about a potential future for the conservative movement. And again, I believe that the nature of American labor unions uh, makes it imprudent. Now, I understand. Imprudent or 
or more than imprudent because well, what I've read, <laughs> you've read, you are absolutely against very, it. Very imprudent okay. for, a num- <laughs> for, um, for reasons that I will get to. Um, you know, to, to give them a little bit, you know, to the, the general realization that sort of underlines all of this is that, wow, there's this very large faction of working Americans, this very large faction of uh, union represented families, what the pollsters call union households, um, which is union members and their immediate family, uh, who are expressing conservative views and are voting for Republicans. Um, And they're voting for Republicans, you know, we use a term in um, in in Washington, in sort of political observation, called the partisan voting index, which is how we, not how Republican or Democratic you are, but how Republican and Democratic you are compared to the national margin. Mm-hmm. So, again, you know, if you believe the exit polls, which kind of are the best, you know, they're they're not great data, but they're kind of the best that we have. Um, the you know, President Trump in 2016 got the same raw margin with union households, he lost them by eight points, that Ronald Reagan did in 1984. Mm-hmm. Now, Ronald Reagan in 1984 won a very substantial popular vote in Electoral College majority. That's correct. Won 49, you know, won 49 states. Uh, we see you, Minnesota. Um, <laughs> the only state. <laughs> um, you know, um, and whereas Donald Trump won, a, won an Electoral College majority uh, did not win a majority of the popular vote. Uh, what that says is that the partisan voting index of union households got way more Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes sense. Than it did than it was in 1984. And so, what the Orin Castles of the world see is, aha, we have all these new work. You know, for lack of a better word, working class supporters. You know, we have to do something to help them be represented in their workplace. And, and so their idea, and just correct me if I'm wrong, is to embrace what the union households are already doing, which is being a part of a union. Yeah. Instead of saying... There, there are a couple, they, they put forward a couple of specific proposals okay. um, as, you know, they would say these are kind of at the point of just being debaters points right now, then like they actually want, you know, they don't have a piece of legislation. Uh, there are these. There's what's called works councils, which is based on a German model, where in addition to labor unions, which do collective bargaining, you would have the works council, which would be elected from amongst the uh, you know the shop floor employees, and that would have representation, certain other representational rights with the employer. So it's a bureaucratic layer. Of it's a bureaucratic layer. That's not technically a union, but that the union has substantial influence in, uh, okay. but that also non-union employees would have influence in. Oh, okay. Um, so they're trying to balance it, it out. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's an attempted to balance the, the observed effect of these in Europe has been that the unions, it gives the unions power beyond their membership. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a basic caution there. Their second idea is even worse. It's something called sectoral bargaining. Okay. It Sector- sounds, that sounds terrible. Uh, <laughs> it's straight from the Bernie Sanders campaign. Oh, the, uh, and, and straight out of socialist Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, what sectoral bargaining is, is in, right now, if you're going to unionize, you have to unionize business by business. So if Ford, if Ford is unionized, the union represents the employees at Ford. 
in and even if there are other you know uh you know gm are also in the uaw and chrysler also in the uaw you know they're all the collective bargaining agreements the the contracts are with each individual automaker okay what sectoral bargaining says is that the you know instead of negotiating a contract with each individual automaker the uaw would sit down with the auto manufacturers council the the auto alliance is what it's actually called um and they would come to a auto industry-wide contract. And that that would apply everywhere. Auto industry-wide? Auto industry-wide. My Lord, you want to talk about... So, that's a so huge you're, so Nissan, so, you industry. know, like you have, you have Nissan, you have Volkswagen, you have Mercedes-Benz, all these, you know, Southern transplant automakers, Honda, Toyota. Like massive pain. They would all be... Potentially, they would all be covered by this. Well, and that's why Bernie Sand—that's why Bernie Sanders and trade, left-wing trade unionists love it because it increases the institutional power of the labor union. So, how is this conservative at all? It isn't. <laughs> the, you know, the. Well, what do you see as their justification for wanting to embrace this? I mean, it's hard with sectoral bargaining. It's hard to say. Uh, you know, at least with works councils, there's a representational. And there's an idea of representation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with sectoral bargaining. Again, I have I don't know. So then, if the, that's the case, but, and especially with sectoral bargaining, where it's just like this is not even remotely something that conservatives could even ideologically get behind. What are they trying to do here? Because again, well, the, these I, are these are these are good conservatives. I mean, right, you know, yeah, we no, have our the, differences, right? But, the, I mean, I compared it in one blog post to underpants notes. The idea is, you know, like the like yeah, like the South like the South like the that. South Park. So the South Park, you have the underpants gnomes. They collect underpants, and then there's stage two, and then there's stage three, which is profit. Uh, and uh-huh. so okay. the logic of the of these uh, of these labor conservatives, for lack of a better word, is that we're going to strengthen labor units, really strengthen their institutional power. We're going to really strengthen their position in society. We're going to really strengthen their ability even to, again, coerce workers who aren't members of labor unions to accept union contracts. And then we're going to have conservative labor reform. And stage two, we don't. Oh. And, the, and when you think about who American labor unions are, you have, these are some of the most partisan, mm-hmm. some of the most aggressively socially and economically left wing. Right. Let me let me interrupt you there real quick because I want to point people to what you wrote about that because as I was reading, uh, you know, to try to prep to talk to you about this, um, your piece on this, which was a magazine piece for us, the third section, which all on our website, but this section is entitled Union Liber- Liberal Networks. You go into just how much pop. Uh, liberal policy unions adopt support, put their money then, behind. I, th- I think. I think. You know, just again because of time, I'll give you one great example. Okay, great. Former president of Planned Parenthood, Cecily Richards, mm-hmm. one of the most powerful people in social liberal politics for like fifteen years mm-hmm. when she was head of. I mean, everybody knows what Planned Parenthood is. Mm-hmm. Actually, most people know who she is. Yeah, yeah. If they don't know the name, right. they would recognize right. her. Yeah. Uh, and how did she get her start? She was a union organizer. Mm-hmm. She was a union organizer for the SEIU. Um, these are 
deeply in the, you know, American labor unions are deeply interwoven throughout the, li the liberal um, ecosystem. You know, uh, you have alumni, you have union alumni at the Sierra Club. You have uh, the head, I believe he is now the head of the Open Society Foundations, Patrick Gaspard. Mm -hmm. He was with SCIU 1199. Mm -hmm. he's, a, he's an old union, you know, union guy. So the cross-pollination between people that are actually, you know, come up through the ranks in unions and people pushing serious liberal policy is pretty significant. It is. It is very significant. Yes. Okay. So and so that's basically, and I know you'll you'll produce more work on this, and we'll get it at some point, and we'll be putting it out there here as an organization. But that's kind of one of the underlying points, right? That you know, it's hard to support unions because. Unions are so connected the four, to the forty-three, the forty-ish percent of union families who are already expressing conservative politics are not going to be more supported if the unions that they already don't agree with are supported more. I see. Yeah, you know, you sense. know, that giving giving more power to Mary Kay Henry and Richard Trumka, uh, the presidents of the SEIU and the AFL-CIO, respectively, uh, staunch. You know. Very staunch Democrats, very, uh, I mean, there are union presidents on on the Democratic National Committee itself. I'm not sure if either of those two are off the top of my head. Uh, but giving, the, giving them more power, giving them and their allies more power does not help the representation of the 43% who are already in dissent. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's leave it there because we are we are well over time, although this has been a really interesting conversation. And I think at some other point, we should revisit it because I, mean, I yeah, I think this, there's, um, there's more to talk about. Yeah, right? there's, more, there's more to talk about and this seems to be gaining momentum. So mm -hmm. I am absolutely certain we will discuss this again. All right. Fantastic. Mike, you, Mike, Mike, you. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, again, I'm Sarah Lee. I'm the Communications Director here at CRC. This is Mike Watson, the Research Director here at CRC. And that is our show for this week. We encourage you to subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have already subscribed, thank you very much. And please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you again next week.